Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast on the Berliner Unterwelten or Berlin from Below. My name is Atia Harvey and I am a senior feminist and gender studies major from Washington DC. My main academic interest involves social issues and environmental issues which is a, a big part of why I wanted to come here, to see a new part of the world and to better understand social issues transnationally. In this session, I am really excited to better understand the Cold War's effects within Germany, and especially Berlin, through underground bunkers. I wonder how big they will be, since they are supposed to fit over a thousand people in them. I wonder how far underground they will be and how effective they will be for protecting people from nuclear bombs. How much did these places even cost to make? Based on my knowledge of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the nuclear test sites in the Pacific, such as the Bikini Atoll Islands, and what I've recently learned about Los Alamos in the U.S., it honestly doesn't seem very likely that you can ever fully be protected from the massive devastation of a nuclear bomb. I am excited to see a new and different part of Berlin, a place that seems so elusive and secretive. I am also excited to see just how these bunkers would have worked. I'm very fascinated with how these bunkers relate to the Cold War. In addition, a film that we watched in preparation for this week was The Rise and Fall of the Berlin Wall. Within these films, we watched numerous escape attempts from people in East Germany trying to get to West Germany. And it begs the question of how might being in East Germany versus West Germany have affected people's ability to have access to these bunkers? Did they have access to these bunkers? How would these bunkers have been given to the people? How would they have been shown or told about these? Did people feel as though it was something that was worthwhile to them? These are so many, these are some questions and part of so many more that I'm so curious about. An underworld in Berlin, an underworld that we tourists are getting to see, an underground that seems very, like I said, and I'll say again, secretive and elusive, even to people who live here and are from here. This seems like a really great opportunity to add to the hidden spaces and hidden narratives that we have discovered in this class. Around 9 a.m. on December 5th, 2017, we are meeting with Berliner Unterwelten or Berlin from below. The Berliner Unterwelten has a variety of tours that explore the underground history of Berlin. The specific tour we will be going on is entitled Subways and Bunkers in the Cold War. Our tour guide is Craig Cheatham and our silent guide, who will stand at the back to make sure we are safe and don't get lost, is Sven. Craig Cheatham is from Australia and came to Berlin by way of studying German history.
While on this tour, we will be looking at the underground history of Berlin, and to be more specific, we will be looking at underground bunkers built to protect citizens from bombs. We will be visiting a World War II shelter that was renovated in the 80s and a subway station slash nuclear bomb bunker that was finished in 1977. This information has been taken from the paragraph provided to us to give us students some context of this tour as well as the Berliner Unterwelten brochure. This session fulfills the mission and vision of the course that is referenced in the course syllabus provided by Dr. Lewis and its direct relation to the title, Hidden Spaces, Hidden Narratives, Implications of Normative Assumptions about the Identities of Marginalized Communities in Germany based on Socioeconomic Status, Citizenship Status, and Political Markers. Going into the Unterwelten is a hidden space and because of its proximity to train stations these places are pretty much hidden in plain sight the narratives that we will be learning about aren't well known and are also hidden as it would seem that these sites are no longer in use and aren't widely talked about the implications of normative assumptions about the identities of marginalized communities in berlin or in germany rather based on socioeconomic status, citizenship status, and political markers, goes into what we will be learn or what we will learn about in terms of the differences and similarities between bunkers, depending on which side of the Cold War they were on, as well as if they were in proximity to a bunker. In terms of the Cold War, I'm referring to specifically where you on the capitalistic side or were you socialist were you in the ussr or were you in the u.s east germany west germany and all of these things that we will learn about and learn more specifically in terms of how it affects and what it goes into effect in these bunkers and how they were represented within germany these are all pieces that are necessary to consider when thinking about who can and will and or will be protected in such dire circumstances. For the first memorable moment of this podcast, I would like to give a brief introduction to the first shelter that we visited, which was renovated in the 1980s. In this portion of the session that I'm going to share with you, our tour guide, Craig Cheatham, is explaining to us how the, the power system or what the power source of this fallout shelter would have been. Far more important than water or food or anything else is this machine. Connected through these pipes up to the surface, the intake shaft, so it would suck air inside here using this motor, right? I'll turn it on in a second to show you. And the air would be diverted, first of all, into this neighboring room. This is where you have the filters, huge tubs of sand, and active charcoal. So it takes out any particle that's inside the air, any fallout, hopefully, if it's working properly, right? Now how this operates, obviously electricity, and where you get that is from the city, the power grid. You're plugged basically into the wall, and as long as your power supply is 
running have actually power, this should be maybe a little bit higher, but okay, that's fine. Then you have ventilation, right? But we know how destructive nuclear bombs are and how vulnerable power lines are as well, right? So you need to have a backup plan just in case the power is cut. A diesel generator, that would be really good, but it's too expensive for this shelter. So your backup plan here, should the power go out, is hand cranks. These would be attached to this machine. And the power then comes from our shelter inhabitants. You are going to keep the people inside here alive. Two of these machines actually in the shelter. So four people at a time would have to be powering the ventilation. By having this sort of backup system, you are assuming that everybody inside your shelter can actually do this. Right? It's not exactly easy to begin with. Right? So little kids, they can't do it. Older people, anyone who's sick, of course they can't do it. You have to be a healthy, relatively young person to even do this. Right? So instead of 1,300 people are able to do it, maybe 500. Four at a time, 48 hours possibly. Right. And it's their responsibility to keep everyone else alive. For this second memorable moment, Craig Cheatham, our tour guide, is in is nearing the end of our tour and is explaining to us the living quarters of the larger shelter within the subway station. We're gonna have one final little station kind of stop after this. But this is the last thing you'll see most of all in this bunker where you would uh, be sleeping. Right? You can see the sofas, so to speak, kind of like a, uh, actually two bunk beds with one put down as a backrest. But otherwise, four levels, bunk beds. Sixty people, therefore, inside this room. Just inside the room. Right? So it's very cramped. Um, so you can imagine how, how noisy it's going to be inside here, right? The ventilation is going, people are snoring all the time, people want to go to the bathroom and they make lots of noise, right? So trying to get to sleep is probably pretty difficult. Most of all, because after those 14 days, you have to leave here. There's no food left. The diesel generator is empty. You have to go out. And if it's a nuclear wasteland, well, then you're in really bad luck, right? So you're kind of thinking about this the entire time. You had a question. What happens if, so say you're supposed to be here 14 days, and on the eighth day someone dies, they had uh, um, body bags which were clear plastic so you could actually see inside because otherwise black body bags attract the radiation um, like, like sunlight and then they would either if the, the shelters already full they would put the bodies in the airlock right which was sealed so it was away from the people or if people were still coming inside they would have to then take the body outside in hazmat suits and so what about medical issues? What is there medical supplies? Is there yeah. medical personnel here? Yeah. yeah. Yes, inside uh, the shelter you had 42 uh, staff members, right? so it was a bit better equipped. You had doctors, you mm. had uh, infirmaries, right? so oh. doctors' rooms. But really the medication extended only to two cupboards about this size wow. for the entire shelter. Oh my so serious illnesses were, I mean, you were in trouble, mm -hmm. definitely, yeah, or really bad injuries or, or whatever.
So if people were like visibly really ill, were they even allowed in? Because like I imagine someone's like really sick, and, like contagious mm -hmm. people yeah. right through really fast in like these quarters. It's I think in such a chaotic situation, it's really difficult to to recognize that so quickly, right? Uh, but they would have the doctors uh, check people over as they came in. So inside those infirmaries, they would then do a checkup, right? See if you were contaminated, see if you were sick, and so on. And they wouldn't necessarily kick you outside. Um, I think that would be quite cool. They had isolation rooms for lots of people. For my third and final memorable moment, our tour guide, Craig Cheatham, is going to explain a bit more about the government's involvement in the fallout shelters. Very last thing everybody, just a couple of minutes and we'll be done, you'll be free, what's your next thing? Um, I just want to show you this photo to finish off. This is the emergency exit to our shelter here, just in case the other airlocks have been blocked in, right? Rubble has made them inaccessible, whatever. So this flap here can then hydraulically shift tons out of the way. Apparently, um, right? A car, maybe that's <coughs> come to rest on top. Buildings that have collapsed. Who knows? You know, you can still get out. The government can still evacuate you then after 14 days. So their plan for evacuation was that they would have buses waiting here. Yeah. Buses. So who is going to drive a bus into a city that's just been bombed? Who would volunteer to do that? I question what? Exactly. That's probably the more uh, uh, serious issue. How are those buses going to get here if there's rubble all over the place? So we asked the government, our association, when this whole program was shut down, right? No more secrets, it's all public now, so we said, okay, what was the plan? You know, this seems kind of like a weird idea about all these problems. And they said, well, you know, and so how are you going to figure that out? And they said, well, we had 14 days then to figure it out. <laughs> so once the bomb was dropped, right, in all that chaos, they were going to somehow magically think up a way to get people out. Yes. This was the best they could do, this shelter, and it's pretty good, right, from everything you see. But the simple thing of the road being blocked and the buses not being able to get here mean these people are stuck, and then they get contaminated anyway. So this is civil defense in the nuclear age. You can't protect people from nuclear bombs, they're too powerful destructive and these shelters are more propaganda as a way to show people look don't freak out right when the reality was that you were in big trouble yes. in 2017 do you think we have the technology now to protect us okay. <laughs> and even if we did it would be sort of primitively expensive that one percent of people would find shelters In reflecting on this session, I have realized that it has contributed deeply to my learning by adding another layer of consideration when thinking about the Cold War. Before this, I never paid much attention to the very real effects of the threat of nuclear attack. This door surely helped me to better understand how the Cold War affected things such as fallout shelters. By this, I am referring to the fact that, according to our tour guide, Craig Cheatham, those in East Germany, including East Berlin, wouldn't have had access to shelters, and yet in the West, they would. And in fact, they would be used to showing everyone that they care about their citizens. 
In addition, during the tour, we learned that millions of dollars were spent on building and or renovating those shelters, yet that would most likely have failed. It's truly mind-boggling to think about all that money that was spent on shelters that wouldn't truly help people instead of feeding citizens, trying to help rehabilitate these people who are war-stricken. It just adds another more sophisticated piece to the puzzle that is war and how it manifests itself in some of the smallest things. I understand that these shelters are no small feat and are very expensive to create, but without truly knowing its effectiveness, and according to Craig Cheatham, only 1% of the population would actually be saved. It honestly doesn't, it's deeply troubling to, to imagine how that would have affected people. Now, on another note, I feel as though during this session, I didn't ask the right questions, such as questions about and in relation to marginalized people. In a conversation I had with our professor, Dr. Lewis, about how this session relates to our class, I found myself struggling to find a relation to my conception of marginalized people as LGBTQI+, people of color, women, etc. And because of this limited mindset and limited idea that I had of what it means to be marginalized, I wasn't able to connect as deeply in this tour or to ask as meaningful questions as I could have had I been thinking in a different vein. In the future, I need to be very mindful of the types of identities and how my positionality is affecting the way I'm seeing things and how it's blocking me from seeing the potential in things. I should have taken this opportunity as a chance to explore and push my own boundaries because I didn't understand the connection to this class. And it's going to take me more time and more reflection and being reflexive on my own terms and on other people's terms and how they want to be interpreted, of course so that I can do and be better in terms of my academic work and in terms of how I can approach different ideas, people, places, things, subjects, and subject areas in a way that allows me to bring in what I know but to also understand and accept things in new and different ways. It's going to be very important in the future for me to be able to do that and to understand things in new and different ways. The last and final section of my podcast will be the discussion that I had with two of my classmates who will be introduced shortly. Hi, Carl and Maddie. Can we take a couple seconds right now and can you introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Maddie. I'm a junior at Colorado College. I'm an organismal biology and ecology major and I'm from outside of Chicago. I'm Carl. I'm a sophomore at CC. I come from Hastings on Hudson, New York. Um, and I plan on majoring in economics and German. Cool, cool. So jumping right in, how did this tour affect your understanding of the Cold War, or did it? Well, I mean, one thing I took away from it was just how really full of uh, hooey the administration was and how what a concerted effort they'd made to create like a facade to, even, to comfort people. 
despite the fact that they don't know any of the protocols or anything that would happen after a nuclear strike or even if these bunkers would be effective. So to me, that kind of the massive amount of money, effort put into building these things just to kind of form public opinion was really a shocking takeaway. Definitely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was surprised of how um, prepared they um, were for the, for the Cold War, and I didn't even know that like they had all these like underground bunkers in train stations or that those were or like could have been used as um, protection areas and I thought that I think it really helped my understanding of like how prepared they were for destruction however they didn't really know that like after they would like if they were to like come out of the bunkers like what it would be like at all so yeah definitely yeah. and for me it also just helped to bring in the fact that nuclear weapons were a huge factor like it, it when i was learning about the cold war it kind of just felt like something that for me was just in the distance because yeah. the closest i've ever come to that is 9-11 because i'm from dc um to, like coming to like that kind of a mentality of like always having to be hyper aware of what's going to happen in the situation of being that scared for your life and then needing like needing the people to at least think and believe that they'd be safe it's it's crazy it just goes to show how much war affected the world and especially germany and berlin specifically so the next question i want to ask you is how do you think these bunkers relate to the realities of post-world war ii germany just from my sense of of the, the political situation it just seems like people everyday people really didn't have much of a say at all it was a pretty grim political situation they're they're technically occupied countries uh, for for a long time after the war ends and I don't know it, it's got to have really influenced um, made, made people a little bit cynical about like what it means to be a citizen in the world especially when you when you have two massive superpowers who are just basically dividing the world up who have nukes and who can really influence any country they want it's like, okay, what is my role then? Does democracy work? Does communism work? And just the fact that, like, they wouldn't really know how they would be affected. Like, um, I think after World War II, they, as Carl was saying, like, you don't really know, like, where you stand, I guess. And I think since, I mean, knowing how prepared they were for the Cold War, I think that really says something as to, like, how worried should they be? I mean, I know our cheer guide was saying, like, how protected would they be? Like, would you survive? Like, they didn't even know. And so I think it says a lot. It was like 1% one, <laughs> 1 of people yeah. would be allowed in the bunkers. Yeah. Even. It's insane. And I think the other thing, and I want you all to, I guess, respond to this as well, is how even the bunkers themselves were still split split into east and west germany mm -hmm. and i i wish i had asked him more about the details of that because he pretty much was like yeah in east germany they just wouldn't get the bunkers the government would and that's it <laughs> and in yeah. west germany it was more for the west to say we care about our citizens and i was just like what and that for me that kind of like also like just painting this huge image of what it meant to be a part of the Cold War and to be occupied countries during the Cold War amidst this 
push and pull of superpowers. It's insane. Yeah, well, he talked about how there were, like, four levels of, like, mm-hmm. bunkers, and I thought that was really interesting that, I forget, I don't know if he said which one had, like, the most, or what level had the most bunkers. Well, four was the most, four. like, long-term bunkers. Yeah, it was, like, for 50 for days or something. Yeah, yeah. 50 yeah. days, but for the government. Like, yeah. yeah. And I thought it was interesting that, like, the other ones were only... 48 hours or 14 days and like that's just not a lot and then with all that radiation like it's just (laughs) (laughs) when you think that like nuclear waste lasts for like or can last for years like the half-life you look at chernobyl i mean that's pretty nearby it's like yeah you can't even drive there for very long yeah you can't even drive (laughs) and something else i just realized if the government's supposed to be sending buses and stuff if they're in their bunkers while everyone has to just go outside, <laughs> what's gonna happen? Yeah, that's pretty ludicrous. That's yeah, act. how do they communicate, like, what's going on or, like, how they're gonna get through this whatsoever? Like, from the start, it's very interesting to actually think about it. And <laughs> I, d- I literally, not... <laughs> I just thought about that. I was like, yeah. wait, if the government's yeah, really. all in their bunkers too, then this plan would really, really wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah, like, just listening to all this stuff and thinking about how scared the world was after Nagasaki and Hiroshima, mm-hmm. I can't, I also can't even imagine, like, how they must have felt about it because they weren't there and they also probably had no idea of the lasting effects yet. They had no clue. Like, they're still dealing with that stuff today. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. Uh, it's just, it's really mind-boggling. So, I want to ask you all, how do you think that these, or what we learned in this tour, um, relates back to this class? Um, and especially, how does it relate to marginalized peoples? One thing I was thinking about was kind of uh, the right to sovereignty. Mm. like when you have two superpowers who are kind of dictating which side you take and fighting over your country based on aggressions against their ideology I don't know it leaves kind of no room for democratic ideals or equality to exist when you're when you're when you're trying to when your two powers are fighting for or vying for control it's really And another thing, um, oh, well, I know our tour guide was talking about this kind of, how it didn't matter, it was first come, first serve, whoever got to these locations, and I was like, so it doesn't matter who you are whatsoever, it kind of actually depends on, like, where you're located, and, um, like, relative to where these bunkers are, so, like, I mean, maybe you would have a small, like, percent chance of, like, maybe surviving more than others, but honestly, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter, like, who's there, and I thought that's interesting because it's not favoring one person or the other, which is, so it's kind of giving, in a way, everyone a fair chance, but also not because you're, it depends where you are, and it's just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, these people are already, especially in Berlin and Germany, they're already victims of war. Yeah. A lot of these people, especially in Berlin, I believe, have already been in bunkers underground for weeks when Russia came in. And, but then, like, that also goes back to, I guess, their marginalized status as victims of war. And just, I mean, I would say that only because, like, 
I feel like there's there's really to me there's really no winners even though you're fighting for power like everyone's harmed in some way and so these people are still like post like <laughs> this insane stuff just went down in this country and now we're preparing for a nuclear war so bombs that are bigger than the ones way bigger than the ones that were already dropped on this on the city on this country like that that has to be a lot to think about and then like in addition i've just been thinking through like the different levels of marginality or like our socioeconomic status race all these different things that were a factor in world war ii and how those things don't just disappear and i mean in societies period just like overarching ideas are always subversively there and so I feel as though, like, although our tour guide said it really just has to do with who you know, I yeah. I feel like margin even more marginalized people, like, the more marginalized you are, like, based on skin color, religion, or whatever, you would be really up to the mercy of whoever that person is who's letting people in. Because they could be like, actually, I don't like you because you're ex. You can't come in here. Yeah, I mean, as hypothetically, I mean, yeah, could be how it played out. I mean, one thing you said earlier, though, about being victims of war, just to me sparked an interesting kind of thought about victim versus perpetrator. Because, mm. I mean, Germany was, in most respects, the aggressor, the original aggressor to mm-hmm. World War One and World War Two, which are basically the same war, just continuations. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if they're marginalized. I don't know if mm-hmm. m- being marginalized affects or, or can be related or used to define those people mm. in the same way. I don't know. Is is race or economics? Mm. What do you think? I, I I get what you're saying. I do, but then like you also have to think about like okay, even the people who are within Germany, like the mass rape that happened. Now you're having Russian Germans, and in addition. Like, what about um, people who have other ethnic backgrounds who are now a part of this society? Um, How do they play a role in, like, who gets to come, who doesn't? But you are right that, for the most part, a lot of Germans were perpetrators of this war. But I feel like, I guess that's that's what that monument, like, that we went to last week was kind of a testament to. It's kind of like everyone um has fallen soldiers like millions of people have died and although they were like the main perpetrators in some ways they are still victims of their own um war in the same way and like i don't know like that word also (laughs) could be unpacked in so many different ways that i don't even (laughs) i can't even explain myself but that's why I guess in many different ways I myself am a pacifist. I don't don't believe in war or circles or cycles of revenge. Period. Because I, when I was speaking with the tour guide last week, and I was like, "Why would they rape all of those women? That's horrifying." And she was like, "Well, they did a lot of unspeakable things to them when they were in Russia, but that's just a cycle of violence in and of itself." So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that you're your point about the fallen sol- the memorials the fallen sol- millions of fallen soldiers and civilians also brought up to me the kind of the hypothetical of what would have 
been different had Germany won the war. We, mm-hmm. we wouldn't even yeah. have known, probably, no. most, of the, most of the stuff that went down here. Yeah. And, I mean, the historical victor gets to write the story, the story yeah. which tends to marginalize someone or something, mm-hmm. some ideology, some group, so. Definitely. In that way, it's tied back into our course. Yeah, and also, I mean, going back to, like, the levels of the bunkers, I mean, the people who were in the government, I don't know exactly who was, like, leading and everything at that time, but they obviously had, like, the first, or they had the ability to be in the bunker no matter what, because they were the top people, and so I don't know if they were, I don't know if they would be, like, marginalized people, or considered marginalized people at all, because I don't know, I'm not exactly sure who was leading them, but that's just another thing to think about because that's already one tier that's, you know, and when, that can be able to say yeah, when, saved. And whenever you are making a hierarchy of things, period, there tends to be, like, levels that people do and do not fit into. But, I mean, yeah. also thinking, like, okay, we're literally just right here. We're across the street from Metro Station. If, like, the nuclear war uh, sirens started to go off, I guess we would run there. But then, like, there's also the level of people who live in their own homes have mm-hmm. that um have their own homes and have somehow built bunkers down there and they would just go in their basement quickly but so i guess in some ways i think they would do that as so that maybe you it doesn't matter how what your socioeconomic status is because even if you are a rich businessman who just decided to take the metro one day you're gonna end up in that same one you don't get yeah. to be but then that's the that's another question if you're in the government and you went to you were on the subway that day <laughs> How do you get to the government one? Like, there's yeah. so many logistical questions <laughs> that feel unanswered. And it goes back to, I guess, what um, Craig, our tour guide, was explaining in terms of the fact that it was really just propaganda. But why yeah. spill, mi- spend millions of dollars on propaganda that's not going to work, even if it does make your citizens feel like it might? Mm-hmm. I wonder if they knew that it only would have fit one percent yeah you, you know well, i guess i don't know if you could figure that out but i don't know there's the power of people's emotions is incredible mm-hmm. i mean it's it's like mm-hmm. what allows the government to stay in power is mm. the harnessing of people's emotion emotions and drives and i think if you can do that successfully then you're going to just maintain that system mm-hmm. um so I don't know, to your point about whether or not it was worthwhile to spend millions of dollars. I know I also raised this earlier about it being pointless, but... All yeah. this stuff is up in the air. Like, well, say... Okay, because we all go to school in Colorado. What if they said, we're going to build bunkers in Colorado now? Would you buy into it? Would you even, like, after going to this, would you even think, like, that's a great idea, let's do it? Or would it make you emotionally feel better to know that there were bunkers? It's hard to say because we don't know know what the threat is. Exactly. I'd head to NORAD. North Korea. Yeah, exactly. I would go to NORAD. What's in NORAD? It's It's the... You know those uh, oh, tower? It's like a hollowed out mountain. Oh, it's <laughs> a fake mountain. That's what it's called. I didn't know that. I mean, like, in a way, it would make me feel safer. Like, I would have somewhere to go. But also, I mean, like, the point that Craig made that, like, it may or may not, it probably wouldn't have done anything. Like, 
it just makes me think a lot about it that I don't know. I mean, where else would I go if exactly. something were to happen? I don't know. Who's counting the amount of people that are coming in? Yeah. I guess when we think about nuclear war, all of our norms and standards go out the window. Because, yeah. I mean, at that point, I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to this at all. And I don't think anybody can. Um, but I think those would be the least of your concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like it. I think Craig was saying that it would take like uh, a whole lot of money to build anything that would actually withstand a nuclear weapon. But like the most I can think of is like fracking oh. those devices. Like I feel like you'd have to get that deep in the earth and build something that like Hitler's insane um, little bunker he built to withstand the bombs <laughs> that would have to be that thick. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, maybe you'd be able to survive because how long can you even stay down there? Kind of an ironic, silly aside. I've heard of people buying old nuclear missile silos, nuclear missile silos in the U.S., mm-hmm. like places that used to have nuclear weapons in them, oh and building luxury condos for like millions of dollars because those are apparently the only places that can withstand a blast. Because yeah, wow. which is which is so there's so many levels of kind of <laughs> craziness right there. Oh my but, goodness. It just reminds me of so much that has to do with, I guess, like, how this all even relates to capitalism and monetary gain of selling um, a theory, a dream, or hope to people. Because yeah. even in, like, going back to Colorado Springs, like, there are a bunch of homes that are built on top of sinkholes and soil, like, that it literally shrinks and moves, so pretty much eventually your heart, your house will fall, will split in half, <laughs> and it's different, and, like, we went and saw that when I was in my FYE in geology, and then, in addition, there's also, like, a bunch of houses that are built on top of an old mine where they literally just filled the holes in, so mm-hmm. you don't know if one day your house could just fall in, so, like, it just, it's, insane like how much of this was actually like let's make our let's prey on these emotions and or was it like let's use this to make more money but like mm-hmm. I guess you're putting money into it to I guess play on people's emotions yeah. yeah and if you I mean if you were to build bunkers in the US it's again a question of like if something happens who's gonna be able to go in there you know there's no way we can build bunkers for every single person i always i always think about i think it's 2012 or one of those end of the world movies where they have like those arcs and literally it really was for the super rich and i think that that's part of why i keep going back to the socioeconomic status thing is like these already um ideas that have been kind of inserted into my mind even before going to see these like oh only the rich are gonna get in but how realistic is that but in the same vein i bet you all those rich people in that movie really did pay oh they gave their money so that they would be built but then yeah i I think i think you're right that that would happen but to me it's less a a question of capitalism and more access to Mm -hmm. information because uh well maybe a combination of both i should say because who do you think is going to get the bunkers in east germany it's going to be the 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 uh, people in government, people mm-hmm. who are in control, who have power. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in capitalism. So I don't know if it can be can can yeah. right. There there, are endless similarities. 
I see between the two. So Same. It's not just like capitalism is bad. Which is what was so confusing to me about like socialism, at least as far as I know, like it's communism. Everybody's supposed to be equal. So then why does the government get to live and everybody else just has to just know? And like, did the citizens of East Germany know that these bunkers existed at all? Or was that just kept from them? And it was only a propaganda ploy in the West. I mean, I guess they did have, like, signs outside of them, but it's not like you have a whole map. All of the places, yeah. and it seems as though a lot of information was filtered in East Germany. I mean, it was filtered in the West, too, but in a different way. It's really interesting how these ideas are, are crafted and sold, almost, to a socialistic or a uh, social socialist society versus a capitalistic society mm-hmm. like what differences does that mean for a nuclear war what differences does that mean for fallout shelters because i thought that was something else that was interesting and like the little blurb it really and even in the blurb that they have on their brochure it refers to them as bunkers and then when we go down there he's like actually these are fallout shelters yeah. so maybe it actually means it well uh, um, just a uh, uh, shed a little bit of light on that. I think the bunker that we went in first was built in, during World War II, mm-hmm. so they, they weren't yeah. aware of the uh, ne- necessity of fallout mm, yep. shelter yet. So, I mean, that could be the difference Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't designed specifically for nuclear yeah. weapons, so it was a bunker. So, how do you think this tour fits in with the other tours like anything of the readings or the movies that we've been watching is any part of that like jump out to you i was just really stunned by the fact the proximity of these places to places where people go every day Mm -hmm. but that nobody knows exist and that was a kind of metaphor to me about all the narratives that do exist Mm -hmm. but are not necessarily in the forefront Definitely. Like, if we, we walked out of the door into the train station. The train mm-hmm. station itself was part of the bunker, but people didn't know it. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like, I, I mean, walking through, when he, when our tour guide said that we were going to just, like, end up in a train station, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I had no idea. Like, and after being in so many different, like, subway stations, not even just in Germany, but, like, mm-hmm. other places, like, I never would have thought of that being, like just so, such a like um popular place like a normal place that people go on a regular basis you never think about that yeah. it's so cool but also like you said that metaphor is so that's really deep it's a really great point like and a lot of the other things that we've been learning it's it's almost the opposite like i feel as though these bunkers are hidden in plain sight or no that's how a lot of people in these narratives mm-hmm. seem to be too like Jewish people uh, were hidden in plain sight until they were put on a list and mm-hmm. were decidedly like, we have to eliminate these people, they are to blame for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and like how all of these narratives, like even when we, yeah. it's so interesting how um, things are filtered out so that you do see certain narratives versus others and how they come into play. And it's the same thing, like, not even just with people, but, like, buildings, like, all around 
Berlin, I've seen, like, they have patches where bullet holes were. And I had no idea about that either. Yeah. But that's just another... Hidden. Another <laughs> hidden... Thing, yeah. And that is the end of my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, my name is Atia Harvey. Thanks for listening. Thank you.